You are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. Welcome to the show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and building deranged mutant killer monster snow goons. This is season four, episode six, Into the Wardrobe. I'm Adam Thomas, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Carrie Combs. Hello, Carrie. Hey, Adam. We're going to talk about being kids today. Oh, thank goodness. People will come into my office and see all my Star Wars Lego sets and sort of chuckle. And and I, I wonder if they think that I'm just, if I'm childish, I'm obviously a grown up. You know, I, I have children of my own. Mm-hmm, <laughs> I have mm-hmm. gray hair in my beard, uh, but I still love toys. I still love games. I mm-hmm. When I say still is the wrong word to use, right? You've always. Yeah, always. It's not something and you, probably you grow always out will. Yeah, right. That's what I tell myself when I buy a new Lego. <laughs> Spend your sabbatical building the Millennium Falcon. That's right. A great use of sabbatical <laughs> yes, time. Indeed. Not the whole sabbatical, the first week. Oh, sure. Okay. No. The fact that you did it in a week, though, is impressive to me. I I love this. I'm, I'm excited to talk about this topic because although I do not have children, I love children um, in my family and, and friends that of mine that have children. I've worked with children before, and I can keenly remember being a child myself. My memories are extremely strong of what it felt like to be a child, and I think... I retain some of that childlike sense of um, imagination and wonder and all the things we're going to talk about today. And as you said that about, if you wonder if people think you're childish, why is childish an insult, but childlike is maybe not as much of an insult? Yeah, why should true. it be? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, I, I, when I've um, introduced people to Dungeons and Dragons, and after 15, 20 minutes of, of playing, you can start seeing people like the wheels in their heads turning mm-hmm. because they realize that this is just fun. It is. And fun. it's not, it's not, uh, it's not work and it's not, it's not something they're performing. It's just something that they do together and they can throw themselves into it. And it's just fun. Uh, so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about childhood and uh, how being childlike brings us closer to childish. God or childish, brings us closer to God. Uh, So our scripture quotation today comes from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 18. Jesus called a child whom he put among them and said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And our nerd quotation is from Calvin, from Calvin and Hobbes, written by Bill Watterson. It's People who get nostalgic about childhood were obviously never children. A lot of people I know who love the same things I love, a lot of my nerd friends love Calvin and Hobbes as well. And I I wanted to talk about it because there's this something about it has stuck with us for the ages. It was obviously a wildly popular comic and it stuck around in kind of popular culture. I think because there's something so true about it and it hits a certain note of wonder and nostalgia. And that, like, you you know, you say the perspective of a perpetual six-year-old, what's it like to live in his brain for a little while um, and, and both feel it that he's familiar, but also very alien to you. You can remember being six years old yourself and like agreeing with, you know, the things he says, but also being like, oh, you are, you are a child. And I relate to your parents a little bit more now. Yeah, right. Yeah, definitely. One of my favorite things, I have the entire collection of Calvin and Hobbes books as well. And my kids who are now seven uh, have been reading them uh, and they really, they really enjoy it. Calvin and Hobbes ran for 10 years and it had lots of different ways of presenting itself depending on what was happening in, in Calvin's head or, or in his life. And my favorite ones were always the ones where it was some sort of imaginative scene. And then in the last panel, <laughs> it was what's actually happening. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, he's, he's, uh, he's spaceman spiff and he's getting, um, he, he's getting taken by the aliens uh, to be thrown into the bath. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or he's um, a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And I, I love that, that sort of reveal in the last panel that is, I, I'm, I'm thinking of one of my favorite ones where he's building with like tinker toys or something. And, and, you know, he's got this elaborate fantasy about the create being the creator, God and destruction and everything. And his parents are like, Oh, he's so, you know, he's going to grow up to be an architect. Um, and I love that, that last scene reveal because 
Um, it is a little bit how I feel when I play D and D you get so into the fantasy, if you're able to engage that imagination. Um, and then when it's over, you realize, Oh, we're just a bunch of people sitting in a room mm -hmm. or on the internet, you know, sitting across yep. the internet from one another. We're just, <laughs> we're just a bunch of adults who have just engaged our imaginations for three hours and played pretend for a long time. Yes. And that's great. And that's wonderful. And I imagine if, if we were like in a Calvin Hobbes strip, we would have like our, our epic heroes fighting the bad guys or investigating strange occurrences. And then the final panel would just be, you know, a bunch of adults sitting around <laughs> sitting a table around a rolling table. dice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Calvin never got a chance to play D and D, I guess. Uh, he didn't need the rules, the rule books though. He, he could have just done it right out of his brain. Well, and isn't that what, what you're learning as you kind of enter your children to like that you, you don't want to have your kids you said to me at least before you don't want to have your kids start playing D, &D yet because they don't they don't need the rules they don't need it we, yep. we need the rules to help us enter into that the yep. rules for them would just hinder what they've already what they're doing naturally engaging yes. in that imaginative play and how important that is to them i found ever since i started playing dungeons and dragons how much more creative i was able to be because i was exercising that creativity in a playful mm -hmm. space absolutely and that we we do get kind of trained out of it. That is natural to us when we're children, when we're very young, and we, because of whatever influences of the world and our, you know, possibly our broken our broken systems that teach us we have to do things. We are human beings, not you know we we are oh, not shoot. human doings. Yes, exactly. Thank you for rescuing that. Um, we you know we're always asking, well, oh, what do you do? Not. It would be yeah, odd not, to not say, who, you who, are. You, who are you, <laughs> who are you? <laughs> as an introductory question? I, I think that Calvin's ability just to take a cardboard box and do amazing things with it, like create a any number of scientific gadgets like his transmogrifier or mm -hmm. his duplicator or, or whatever. My own children, whenever a new box shows up <gasps> in our house, it's Christmas. <laughs> Love it's just box. amazing. It's amazing. They don't care what's in it. It, uh -huh. What's in it's probably not for them anyway. It's probably something from subscribe and save on Amazon or something. But they now have a new box and a new world to play in for a couple of days until it gets, you know, too worn and destroyed to to keep going. Mm -hmm. And just to, I, I just, I, it's hard for me to bring myself back into that imaginative space where I see a box and I go, "That's not a box. It's a spaceship." And that's where we have to be as adults. We have to be tricked into it. And I think we also have to come to terms with the fact that when we play, when we use our imaginations, we're not wasting time. Um, we, in our, in our broken systems where Sabbath time is devalued and increasingly cut up, or when we have to spend our time off from our jobs or our lives doing, you know, doing laundry, cooking, taking care of the car when it's leaking oil or whatever, our lives are so demanding in so many ways when in fact we still need space for recreation or is if you want to break it down recreation that that is intrinsic that is important to how the world is that we are not our worth isn't defined by what we do but just by who we are and our being and that when we just exist when we play when we rest when we recreate ourselves and the world around us we're engaging in something that is inherently valuable and so nick and i have this um kind of packed between with one another as we've been struggling through the last year and a half of pandemic and a lot of job transitions on our side and a lot of upheaval and moving and changing when we're resting, when I'm, you know, playing Skyrim for the second time through and, and engaging in an imaginative play in my, in my way, way of doing it, or when he's building a course for his rock crawler outside, we're kind of checking. We're like, this is okay. Right. It's okay that I'm doing this. And the other one is always like, yes, this is good. What you are doing is good. And I'm glad to have that permission because I would let those voices telling me that I'm just wasting time or I'm being childish would prevent me from doing that. And so part of what I love about our nerdy pursuits is there's a lot of children in the properties that we enjoy. We've, we haven't talked about them on the podcast. That's why I'm glad that we are today. Um, that a lot of the children in our favorite books and movies, um, and shows to an extent that reveal that kind of hidden childlike world to us and give us something to strive for and make us say, it's okay to be that way. In fact, it's valuable and it can teach us a lot. And it just might be the way we are meant to be in general. Mm, yeah. I like how you said that, that the, the concept of rest is different from the concept of recharging. 
We do not mm-hmm. rest in order to recharge and then keep going. Rest is itself in itself is a good. And yes. it is by, you know, Sabbath is not something we do in order to then get back to the grind. <sighs> Sabbath yep. is its yep. own thing. We, f- we fall into that kind of hyper-capitalist trap, mm-hmm. which, which is that every moment of our day must be commodified. Uh, that the billable hours, even if we're not lawyers, we still, for some reason, think in kind of billable hours. One of my favorite short books that I like to revisit every once in a while, going back to those systems that create those demands on us and are inherently harmful to us um, is Walter Brueggemann's Sabbath as Resistance. And his, his whole thesis is right there in the title that when we take time for Sabbath, for recreation, for rest and true rest, you're right, not just recharging to go back, but true rest that we are actually resisting the evil one, resisting those forces that would have us be defined only by what we do or produce or buy. Um, and that that is that Sabbath is in itself a holy act that we need to reclaim space for. So some of the children that we wanted to talk about today, why don't we, since we already began talking about play with Calvin, mm-hmm. let's just let's just mention Aang from Avatar, The Last Airbender. Which I haven't seen in a long time because I don't have enough recreation time, <laughs> but I will watch it again. Okay, uh, but tell us well, about Aang. Just, let's just, from the very beginning of the show, um, it's, uh, Aang is, uh, I'm not sure exactly how old he is, maybe around 10, mm-hmm. uh, somewhere in that range. Um, and he has been encased in ice for a hundred years. Uh, with along with his sky bison Appa, and in the first episode after he's thawed by uh, Katara and um, Sokka, he the first thing he wants to do is um, go sledding on top of a penguin. What? Like there's like a whole episode. <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> there's like a whole episode where he wants to go penguin sledding. And, okay. and, and so, so like from the very beginning in Avatar: The Last Airbender, you you notice how. Uh, how much this child enjoys life, mm-hmm. uh, how open he is, how how he wants to play, how he wants to have these new experiences. And those experiences make him who he is and also help him to learn what he needs to learn throughout the series, which is how to master all four of the elements. I, I would imagine that some of his teachers when he was uh, back in the, back before he was frozen for a hundred years, probably um face palmed a lot when he was mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. Uh, because he is a goofy he's a very goofy character and i feel like that's almost in direct contrast to one of our our other favorite like boy hero chosen ones is, is harry potter's not a very playful person and so that is a refreshing mm-hmm. change from someone who is extremely serious so so moving from ang in avatar mm-hmm. the last airbender why don't we move over to a completely different property and talk a little bit about the um, Chronicles of Narnia. And this will be our second episode in a row talking about uh, fiction by C.S. Lewis. Strangely. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Cause he doesn't have a lot of fiction, but apparently we're but talking we're, we're about on it. C.S. Lewis kick. And, and that is where we get our episode title from is into the wardrobe. Um, and so this is, you know, this is a well-beloved series. I think we focusing mostly on the lion, the witch and the wardrobe or the one, the ones that focus on the Pevensey children themselves. So there's, there's four children and they're able to enter this magical world of Narnia through the back of the wardrobe um, in a, in a moment of wonder and innocence and ex open exploration. That's how, that's how Lucy ends up in Narnia to begin with is she's just exploring. Yeah. And then they, they end up playing like hide and seek and oh, she's, right. yeah, she, she ends up in the wardrobe and when they're playing hide and seek uh, and there's a, a great scene um, where the older children, they're all, st- they're the older children are still like teenagers, young teenagers, mm-hmm. uh, Peter and Susan um, go see the professor. This is all happening during World War II during the blitz and the children have been sent to country estates. Uh, that's that's why right, they're for there safety. for safety Ed, Lucy and Edmund end up in end up going into the wardrobe uh, and then Edmund denies having gone because he's a rotten kid mm-hmm. uh, and he wants to make fun of his sister and so Susan and Peter <sighs> older brother Susan and Peter go <laughs> to see the uh, professor and they're talking about like well which one of them is telling the truth it, it, it we we usually would trust Lucy but what she's saying is so fantastical mm-hmm. 
Susan says, Lucy had had no time to have gone anywhere, even if there was such a place. She came running after us the very moment we were out of the room. It was less than a minute, and she pretended to have been away for hours. And the professor then says, that is the very thing that makes her story so likely to be true. If there really is a door in this house that leads to some other world, and I should warn you that this is a very strange house, and even I know very little about it. If I say she had got into another world, I should not be at all surprised to find that the other world had a separate time of its own, so that however long you stayed there, it would never take up any time, any of our time. On the other hand, I don't think many girls of her age would invent that idea for themselves. If she had been pretending, she would have hidden for a reasonable time before coming out and telling her story. And then Peter says, but do you really mean, sir, that there could be other worlds all over the place, just around the corner like that? And the professor says, nothing is more probable, said the professor, taking off his spectacles and beginning to polish them while he muttered to himself, I wonder what they do teach them in these schools. <laughs> so the professor here, we find out much later, has also been to Narnia. We find that out in The Magician's Nephew. Um, and when I say later, I mean in the old numbering, not the current numbering. If you've never read The Chronicles of Narnia, don't start with The Magician's Nephew. Uh, but he is open, the professor, this old man, is open to that very childlike state of imagination mm -hmm. and just deciding it's very probable that there are other worlds. Of course uh, there is. Of course. There, why, why wouldn't there be? And Susan and Peter have, it's, it's like the professors indicting their schools because the school is teaching out their imagination. It's, it's, mm, it's, it's limiting them. them. It's limiting them in a, in a way. Uh, and then of course, all four children make it into Narnia in the next chapter when they're trying to run away from the housekeeper who's giving a tour of the house yes. and they all make it into Narnia. Uh, and Narnia is this fantastical place with all types of creatures and and a creation myth and a witch and and of course Aslan, who we've talked about before. Um, and the only way to get into Narnia is to believe that you can get into Narnia, that that you have an, that you have enough of that childlike imagination. Um, or even faith might even be another word for mm -hmm. it. You know, the faith that when, when Jesus says, you, um, you know, if you have enough faith, you can move mountains or you can tell that mulberry bush to get planted in the sea. That's the type of faith that, that these children have in order to get into Narnia. Right. And it's the schools or it's, it's other, other children, perhaps the peer pressure, the, um, Edmund making fun of Lucy, although she does not back down from her story, um, that would begin to limit that, that faith and that belief that he can, that one could enter into a place like Narnia. And as we see throughout the books, other people are able to enter Narnia similarly. And then as they mature, as they age in the case of Susan, she's not able to go back. She loses that, um, kind of in a, I meant to look this up in a way that's a little weird, like she grows up and she thinks it's all nonsense and pish posh or whatever. Um, and she's, she's blocked from Narnia and she thinks, you know, what a, what a silly game we used to play together as children. When in fact, her older brother, Peter, uh, still knows that it's real and still believes in it. The same type of imagination and wonder that the children engage in when they go into Narnia uh, finds other expressions in other media. And I know that one of your favorite um, movies by Hayao Miyazaki is My Neighbor Totoro. Oh, of course. It's, I, I love watching that film because I think it, it's one of those pieces of media that expresses what its point is just by being. So when you watch it, you become childlike in yourself in order to, to just make it through the film and enjoy it. Um, and so that's, that's briefly the story of two young sisters who move with their father to an old house in the countryside to be closer to their mother, who's in the hospital for some reason. Um, and their father's taking care of them as, um, as she's receiving treatments and may the youngest one, she's maybe like, what did you say? Four. She's, she's still pretty small. Um, her older sister goes to school, but she stays home with her father while he, he does like, he works, he works from home before that was a thing. And, <laughs> and she, doesn't have a, you know, a babysitter. She just kind of entertains herself in their yard and, and explores and plays. And she stumbles upon this extra world, this, um, this underneath layer to their whole, to their whole existence. And they discover this, you know, this great creature, they call him a troll in the English translation. I'm not sure exactly what 
that is in Japanese, but Totoro, the big fuzzy, lovable creature. And um, she stumbles into it by exploring the tunnels underneath the giant tree in their backyard. And she finds her way to Totoro's lair, essentially. Um, and when she goes back to, it's a little bit like falling into Narnia, right? When she goes back to look for it later with her sister and father, it's just a tunnel that that exits again. And so they're they're thinking, you know, adorable little May, she's had this wonderful imaginative time. She's imagined this whole scenario. But in fact, there is there is a real world right under the surface. And so in the very gentle adventure that is My Neighbor Totoro, you, you get to see this hidden world and then you see hints of it throughout the rest of the films. So like at one point, she and her sister ride on the cat bus and it's this, you know, this bus that's actually a cat and it's running across the countryside um, and it, ha- it brings with it this like wind and the and all the grasses ripple. And later in the film, you don't see the cat bus, but you see the the wind rippling and you know, you know, that must be where the cat bus is going. Um, And I just, I love this movie because, and I I know a lot of other people do, because it puts you in that place of of excitement, of wonder, of gentle and safe um, exploration of this hidden world right below the surface. And that um, these creatures are benevolent. They want to, they love May. They want to help her get her back safe in the kind of the end of the film where she's lost. And um, it's just a wonder, it's a wonderful place to live in. And I think it really does help reveal that sort of childlike sense of wonder and joy. Mm. The word wonderful is a great word because you can break it up into two words, wonderful, full of wonder. And wonder has two meanings. There is the idea of wonder as in awe. And there's the idea of wonder as in thinking about something and, and musing on it. I, I, cause I, I wonder about something or I am lost in wonder. Those are the, the two different meanings. And those meetings intersect in, um, this, this wonderful, um, this wonderful thing called godly play. It is a formation program for children and adults. Adults can, can find beautiful, um, depth in the stories of godly play. But again, it's, it's more than just a, formation program. It is an ethos and a, and a way of life. Uh, when I write sermons, I'm often thinking about wondering questions and a wondering question is something that doesn't have a definitive answer. It's a question designed to expand your mind and expand your heart. And, uh, and those questions are asked of the children after they hear a story of godly play, specifically because those questions resist right answers you know, quote unquote, right answers. You can't give a right answer to a wondering question. Uh, and that type of, of expansion into the imagination is one of the ways that we connect with God. Godly play is not a curriculum so much as it is a way of teaching the language of faith. Uh, we believe in godly play that children already know God and in ways that adults have forgotten like we said earlier Absolutely. about play, been trained, trained, or, out or of. trained out of children know God in a way that we adults do not know God. And at the same time, they might not have some of the language system with which to think about that or reflect on it or to wonder about that relationship they have with God. And so let, let me read you this little paragraph. So I, I, I've been trained as a storyteller uh, or mentor now in godly play, uh, taking um, the basic training and also the advanced training several years ago now. It's been mm-hmm. a while. Um, but in the training, they, they give this uh, paper that's called the three parables for teaching. Um, and in the, 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 the third parable is the one that's really a godly play ethos. Um, whereas the, the, the other parables are very much about kind of didactic teaching. You know, you, you, mm, you sit there mm-hmm. and you, and you teach something and you, you open up a kid's head and you pour information in. <laughs> right. Um, and, and it's very much on you, the teacher to make sure they know things and, and you actually kind of stand in between God and the child by doing that. And, and it's not necessarily wrong to do that, but it's also maybe not entirely the, the best way. So this is the, this is the final way. This is the third parable. Um, I took a little child's hand in mine to lead them to God. My heart was filled with gratitude for the glad privilege. We walked slowly. I suited my steps to the short steps of the child. We spoke of the things the child noticed. Sometimes it was one of God's birds. We watched it build its nest. 
We saw the eggs that were laid. We wondered later at the care it gave its young. Sometimes we picked up God's flowers and stroked their soft petals and loved the bright colors. Often we told stories of God. I told them to the child, and the child told them to me. We told them, the child and I, over and over again. Sometimes we stopped to rest, leaning against one of God's trees with the cool, rustling breezes caressing our brows, silently, never speaking. And then, in the twilight, we met God. The child's eyes shone. They put their hand in God's. I was, for the moment, forgotten. Wow. And that's how we, <laughs> that's, that's our role in working with children to know God is to not get in the way, but to it, but to nurture the instinctive imaginative space and the imaginative space is a place where the image of God lives. And what a refreshing change from either. It's my job to open up your head or depart all of the knowledge that I have garnered. And then it's, you know, make sure you retain it, close it up and hope it doesn't all leak out. Um, or another way I, I have seen children's formation happen is the, the commodification or trivialization of children of, of let's bring them up front, polish them off, line them up, have them sing a cute song. And then we all say, oh, what cute children. And then they trot off back to the basement and are forgotten about. Um, what I've appreciated about participating in Godly Play, being trained as well, um, actually at your church. So thank hey, you again for hosting right. that years ago. And from being a storyteller is, uh, is, it, is it does honor what the child brings, learns from them, but not in a way that's exploitative necessarily. And that eventually, right, your job is to, gently be forgotten, not to push them out of the nest or anything, but just to step aside and let the wonder take over. And um, if we can do that with adults, then we're also, I think, doing a good job. Just adults are a little, like I said, less, less able to inhabit that space. And children are, if we are asking the right questions and not a question with the right answer, that they will find paths and reveal things um, and make their own connections in a way that is really wonderful to see. Some of the wondering questions we ask are, where are you in the story? Or um, is there anything that we could leave out of the story and still have everything we need? And it teaches a flexibility of encountering sacred story. And I imagine the rest of the world, um, which we, we also think of as a sacred story, um, with a flexibility, not with a rigidity that is fragile and brittle, but is, is flexible and generous and creative. So if you're an adult listening to this podcast, and you probably are, because I don't know too many kids who listen to podcasts, we encourage you to play, to use your imagination. And if you're a nerd, you probably already do that, but it's okay. It's perfectly okay to do that. It's perfectly okay to be who you are, which is a person whose heart is full of wonder. This time on the podcast from Nerdy Christians Ask Us Anything section, we have a question from Kara. She asks, what's your take on fan fiction? Is it a helpful thing for fandoms and fans? All right, let me go first because mine's going to take 10 seconds. Okay. <laughs> I've never read a single piece of fan fiction ever. Are you kidding me? No. I have. I know I have a preconception in my head that says fan fiction is badly written. And, wow. and I know that's wrong because you tell me it's wrong, but <laughs> I, I have it in my head that, uh -huh. that, you know, I, and I like to read things that are, are, are well-written and um, yeah. So I know I've got some prejudice there and Carrie needs to educate me. So please go for it. So I, I don't read a ton of fan fiction, although I have a few that are my favorites that I have 
shared liberally on this podcast. Um, actually, I got into fan fiction through my friend Kara, but I think it's it's an emerging world. I mean, it's existed for a long time, as our friend Rowan would point out, that fan fiction did not emerge with Harry Potter, but is in Star fact Trek, yeah. Star Trek. And even before then, I would say there's been fan fiction for as long as there have been fans of things. Yeah, um, Arthurian legends that, you know, they're exactly. just, you know, they're it's all just fan lots of fictions fan fiction. of each other. <laughs> <laughs> there's a niche for everything. There's kind of like, you know, if you can think of it, there's a, there's something on the internet about it. Um, yeah. There's a fan fiction about it. And I think it, in some ways it, even the smuttiest or worst written or most silly fan fiction, the most insert self Mary Sue fan fiction um, is still an act of creation. And I love that um, as I've expressed probably many times on this podcast, um, there's some fan fictions that I hold deeply in my heart that have expanded my world of all the questions I wish were tackled in some of the books I love, but, but weren't, um, are able to be explored there. I think it is helpful for fandom and fans. They can get, but just like any fandom, as we explored a couple episodes ago on our question from Mindy, people can get very rabid around their fandoms. And that might not be so helpful when, when you say that someone else's fun is bad or that, you get um, kind of angry at one another around it. And I think the authors that have embraced fan fiction are the authors I admire that stance. I think the ones that have said, like Anne Rice has said, don't write fan fiction about interview with a vampire. It's mine, my world, you can't have it. And I think that's really crummy. Instead, I love when authors are saying, I've created this world, go ahead and play in it. It's your sandbox, enjoy. That is, that is a beautiful thing. And I, I would, if I was ever a published author, I would be honored if people wrote fan fiction with my characters. Yes. My D and D character, uh, Emmerich is basically fan, like a fanboy of, of your first <laughs> novel in that series of the, um, the storm curtain, the storm curtain. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Um, and I made him basically like my own fan fiction, man. <laughs> so, but there's so much out there. Go find your own. Um, also, Archive of Our Own won the Hugo Award. The whole entity of the Archive of Our Own Fan Fiction Depository repository won an award as for like a published work uh, it, to honor the fact that it, it's a collection of great creativity and a human imagination. We have five chapters to get through today in Harry Potter 7, so let's jump right in. Chapter 23 is Malfoy Manor. As the trio are seized and brought to Malfoy Manor, Harry flashes back and forth between the current hopeless situation and Voldemort's cheerful visit to Grindelwald's prison. Bellatrix is on the brink of summoning the Dark Lord when she spies the Sword of Gryffindor. Harry and Ron are locked up with Dean, Luna, Ollivander, and Griphook the Goblin, and Hermione is kept for questioning via torture. Desperate and afraid, Harry yells for help into the mirror fragment, and Dobby appears, disapparating again with the other prisoners. Wormtail is sent to investigate, a scuffle ensues, and his small, merciful impulse towards Harry becomes his demise as the silver hand gifted by Voldemort strangles him to death. Emerging to rescue Hermione, a standoff occurs, broken by Dobby, who drops a chandelier on Bellatrix, resulting in yet another scuffle. As the trio operate away to safety with Dobby and Griphook, Bellatrix has her revenge. They arrive at Shell Cottage, and Dobby falls down dead, Bella's knife lodged in his chest. Chapter 24, The Wandmaker. Hallows or Horcruxes? Hallows or Horcruxes? The thoughts swirl around in Harry's head as he digs Dobby's grave, culminating in a choice. Harry asks to speak to Griphook first, on the suspicion that a horcrux lies deep in the Lestrange's vault at Gringotts. But Griphook will have to consider whether he'll assist in the risky endeavor. Moving on to Ollivander, Harry questions him based on his growing suspicion about Voldemort, Grindelwald, Dumbledore, and the Elder Wand. The wand chooses the wizard, and some wands may change allegiance if they have been one. So who does the Elder Wand belong to? As Harry's vision flashes to Voldemort breaking into Dumbledore's tomb, he knows at last Voldemort wants the Elder Wand. Chapter 25, Shell Cottage. Griphook agrees to help on one condition. He wants the sword of Gryffindor. Conveniently, leaving out when they would hand over the sword, Harry, Ron, Hermione, and the goblin begin making plans. One blustery night, Lupin arrives bearing tidings of joy. Tonks has had their baby, Teddy. 
Harry is named Godfather, and for one shiny evening, it was as if the war never existed. Until Bill takes Harry aside for a conversation. Goblins, he warns Harry, have very different ideas of ownership when it comes to goblin-made treasure, and it would be less dangerous to break into Gringotts than to renege on a promise to a goblin. Not that Harry would ever try to do that. Chapter 26, Gringotts. If you've ever played D&D, you know how this chapter goes. The plan is beautifully crafted. They have all the elements they need to bluff their way into Gringotts. Bellatrix's hair and wand, Polyjuice potion, and a real-life Gringotts goblin to guide them. And yet, of course, it goes wrong. A few imperious curses later, and the trio plus Griphook are inside the Lestrange vault, which has more treasure in it than my kleptomaniac Skyrim character's armory. Among the wonders is the cup of Hufflepuff, but it isn't easy to grab. Every time someone brushes a piece of treasure, fiery hot duplicates burst forth. Climbing the rising tide of red hot treasure, Harry grabs the cup, but Griphook has the sword and ditches them. There's no time for a better plan. The trio desperately free the blind, tortured dragon that has been guarding the vault and blast their way free astride its back. Chapter 27, The Final Hiding Place. Jumping from the dragon's neck into a cool mountain lake, Harry, Ron, and Hermione emerge and take stock of their situation. Up one horcrux, down one sword, their cover entirely blown. Voldemort will soon know they are hunting his horcruxes. Harry's double vision reveals the terrible aftermath at Gringotts as Voldemort learns the cup is gone but grants him a hint as to where the final Horcrux lies, Hogwarts. Lucky for our heroes, Voldemort decides to visit his hiding places, beginning with the gaunt shack, but the clock is ticking. With no plan whatsoever, they apparate into darkness. This is the deep breath before the plunge. As I believe Gandalf would say. We made the same joke about D&D when we talked about uh, the... uh, uh, the Ministry of Magic. Oh, no, we did. <laughs> we did. You wrote those chapter summaries, I believe, and I wrote, I, and these, you wrote ones. these ones. Yeah, it worked both times, though. But so. it's true. I think, in terms of the, you know, this is kind of mirroring in so many ways. Shell Cottage is the chapter that mirrors when they kind of hang out at Grim Old Place and they make all of their notes. And then this mirrors the ministry break in a lot of ways. And that is such, such a good idea. And it goes so poorly. I love the scene in the movie where. Helena Bottom Carter is playing yes. Emma Watson playing her character. It right because me she up. had they had Emma Watson do the scene right. Like and I, think, then, I think Emma Watson directed. I think she uh, did it, and then and yeah, then Helena yeah. Bottom Carter came in and did acted. the scene too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's some it's some Inception <laughs> level of and it's it is wonderful acting from her, and we you know we get to see the hilarity of Hermione struggling to be rude to people yeah um, right like right. She, she's immediately clocked by tom when she's like good morning <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> no so let's back up to shell uh, to uh to malfoy manor right because that that's a big chapter yeah so draco is so reticent to say anything and I've, I've i'm really curious what your take on why draco who obviously knows that it's harry ron and hermione mm-hmm. why does he not give them up I mean, I think it's he's having second thoughts, but he's unable to take a real stand like he does throughout, like him and his parents take throughout the whole thing. I mean, Narcissa in a couple chapters will lie about Harry being alive in order just to go find her son. I think Draco, too, is like unwilling to commit either way, but he's in a situation where he's way over his head, I think. What what do you think about it? Draco has been fed a particular worldview his entire life. Mm Mm-hmm a worldview of hierarchies, a worldview where he and his family are uh, head and shoulders above everybody else. And I think six years at, at Hogwarts has dampened that or shown him other worldviews. And he is not brave enough to step out from the worldview that Mm -hmm. he originally had the one that he was socialized with he knows i think in his gut that that worldview that he has had from childhood is wrong but he is not brave enough to step out on his own and we see that at the end of book six on the tower the astronomy tower where dumbledore is offering him an out he says you know i can we can take you tonight we can hide your mother and your i guess your father we'll hide your mother at least 
just lower your wand and come with us. Like he doesn't have to go this way. And he's, he's hesitating. He doesn't ever commit either way. And that's when snake bursts forth. That's when the other death eaters come behind him. So we, we do see this, this incredible ambiguity. And I also wonder if, you know, if Voldemort's using their house as a evil dungeon layer, he doesn't, he doesn't, I don't think Draco wants him to come. Bellatrix is the one who later, you know, she's going to summon him and, and Lucius is all excited to summon him. Uh, and Bellatrix is like, you know, we are in graver danger than we could possibly know. They understand how dangerous it is to have him there. Bellatrix would sell anything and do anything to have his favor. But Narcissa is not as convinced, probably does not like having such a dangerous person in her home, even if she supports the ideology in general. And I'm sure Draco doesn't love coming home for the Easter holidays to have you know, death, he, death eaters headquarters in his home with the possibility of Voldemort coming by at any moment. Yeah. Yeah. It's all a little bit too close. It was easier to have that ideology mm. before Voldemort came back when it wasn't, when it was more abstract. Yeah. But now that it is concrete, now that he is forced to see what the results of that ideology are, he wavers. And I'm glad he wavers because the the alternative one of the alternatives is just buying into it completely. Mm-hmm. But it would be it would be way better if he you know wavered the other direction. We would love that, but I think that's part of the we see the full range of choices at work, and we do see that you know Draco's choices make him who he is, which is to say, in a lot of ways, kind of a failed man. Poor Hermione in this um, this scene as well. I mean this. She is literally tortured. And I think it's interesting that she mostly does tell the truth. The only thing she lies about is that the sword is a copy. Other than that, she says, we found it. We've only met Griphook tonight. We've never been inside your vault. All of those are true. The only thing she lies about is that it's a copy. And I wonder if she took Ron's wisdom to heart, that it's very difficult to to lie under pressure. And she sticks with mostly the truth. So I'm curious about the range of apparition because it says soon Voldemort would be close enough to apparate to them. Yeah. Is it ever established what the range in app- on apparition is, or is, is it dependent on how powerful a wizard you are, how far mm. you can apparate? Not in canon is it explored, uh. but in fan fiction, <laughs> there's so much exploration. Good to um, know. Okay, that's enough. I don't need to know yeah, about I the think, fan fiction. Yeah, I th- and Voldemort's very powerful, right? So if he, right. Can't, if he can't apparate from... You know, Germany. Know, Germany somewhere in Germany. Because <laughs> we end... The last line of Malfoy Manor, the chapter of Malfoy Manor, I wrote down because I thought it was really beautifully written. Mm. Uh, oh. and, then, and then with a little shudder, the elf became quite still and his eyes were nothing more than great glassy orbs sprinkled with light from the stars they could not see. It's a really beautiful moment mm-hmm. it, for, from an author who's not, I, would, I wouldn't say that J.K. Rowling is known for her prose. Mm-hmm. She's known for her plot. Yes but not necessarily for her prose. But here we actually do get a, a sense that, that Rowling really can turn a phrase. And I, I think this writing death scenes is very hard, especially for characters that you are beloved like Dobby. And she does a really good job of it, I think. And I, and I think the beginning of, Shell, of um, the Wandmaker chapter where Harry's digging the grave is just one of my favorite scenes of the entire series of Harry Potter. I love that. Um, his scar burned, but he was master of the pain. He felt it, yet was apart from it. Grief, it seemed, drove Voldemort out, though Dumbledore, of course, would have said that it was love. That he is he is finally able to block Voldemort when he doesn't want him, to invite him back in when he needs convenient information. Yeah, I wrote, I wrote that same line down, uh, I thought, um, where he says, uh, the, uh, earlier on that page says... Voldemort's rage was dreadful, and yet Harry's grief for Dobby seemed to diminish it, so that it became a distant storm that reached Harry from across a vast, silent ocean. I will say, Shell Cottage is a great place to go to be in grief, I would think. It's it's a lonely (laughs) place. Yeah. There's also another beautiful line in this this chapter, um, which is Luna's eulogy for Dobby. I wish every eulogy was this good. She says... She, she met the elf tonight. That's all, you know, he shows up, takes her away. And she says, thank you so much, Dobby, for rescuing me from that cellar. It's so unfair that you had to die when you were so good and brave. I'll always remember what you did for us. I hope you're happy now. She, she thanks him. 
she names the unfairness of it, that he was a good soul and that he, you know, she thinks it's unfair that he had to die and that she'll remember him and that she wants him to be happy, just like boiled down in its, in its essence. Um, it's true. It's honest. There's no flowery language. There's no cliches in there. Like we kind of say a, a lot of us want to always rely on when we are trying to speak about death. Um, she just, it's so genuine Luna. And I love that. And then all everyone else can do after that is just say, thank you. And of course, Harry carving the headstone to say, you know, here lies Dobby, a free elf. Here lies oh. Dobby, a free elf. Oh, too soon still. It's been over 10 years and that still hurts when you say that. He's, he goes back to his old master's house and he fights for what he believes in. And that is a, a death that is worth dying if there was such a thing, I believe. Mm. And Harry understands that and wants to honor his memory in this way by continuing on. Later in that chapter, uh, right after the funeral, Harry uh, is is reflecting, says, Dobby would never be able to tell them who had sent him to the cellar, but Harry knew what he had seen. A piercing blue eye had looked out of the mirror fragment, and then help had come. And then in italics, it says, help will always be given at Hogwarts to those who ask for it, which, if my memory serves, is something that Dumbledore says in book one. Mm-hmm. When About they're... the phoenix coming. Oh, wait. In two. Is it in number two? Yeah, because Lucius Malfoy gets him booted. Oh, right. It's when he's leaving Hogwarts the first. Yeah, Yeah, and they're in Hogwarts hut. Thank you. Yes. He says it to to no one in particular. Right, right. (laughs) And and I thought to myself, help will always be given at Hogwarts to those who ask for it is is kind of a microcosm of Harry's whole story. Because how often does Harry need help? And not ask for yeah. it. We've talked about this yeah. a lot yep. on this podcast. <laughs> but here in this moment, he actually does call out for help and Dobby comes. Dobby, the, the creature who, when he first meets Harry, Harry doesn't want to have anything to do with him. He thinks he's weird. He, he you know, he gets basically gets in a big, big amount of trouble with the mm-hmm. ministry over the cake. And thank goodness that Dobby breaks his promise to never try to save Harry's life again. I think that's that's kind of like the comedic end <laughs> oh, to their little, I never their little friendship. Like, haha, that's never good. try to save me. I don't think I don't, I don't remember if I'm getting the movie mixed up because I've seen the second movie a lot of times. Okay. Um, he just kind of laughs nervously. He doesn't actually promise. Yeah. And right. here he comes and saves <laughs> his life again. I thought that the uh, the you, you in your summary you did a really nice job um, talking about that shining moment in Shell Cottage when Lupin comes to tell tell them about Teddy's birth. Mm-hmm. And there's a line in it that says tidings of new life were exhilarating. That's a nice line, you know, and it made me think of Easter, you mm, know, on mm-hmm. Easter Sunday, we, that's what we proclaim this new life, right? Resurrection, the resurrection, new life in, in the resurrection sense, not new life in the new baby sense, but, but it's that same exhilaration. And, and I remember a couple of times during the height of the pandemic where uh, I had hear from a friend who had a baby or, or some other big life mm-hmm. event happening and just, being so, uh, it was like being in the desert and finding that oasis and drinking, uh, somebody else's vicariously drinking up somebody (laughs) else's joy Uh because it was so far, there was so little joy few and far between. And I was thinking about that when, when Lupin comes to shell cottage and that he and Harry are able to have this reconciliation after what, what had happened in Grimald place and Harry's kind of tough love with Lupin in Grimald place, put him in the right, put him on the right path because now he, he seems really happy about being a dad. Yeah, and he probably had lots of time to reflect on that fight and probably regret the way he left things with Harry and come around to realizing, no, this kid was right. I should have been with my wife who is pregnant instead of out gallivanting. I hated hearing the term or reading the term wandless. The beggars in the streets of Diagon Alley are called the wandless. Yeah. Uh, the de- again, the kind of dehumanizing these these wizards, witches, and wizards who had their wands taken away mm-hmm. by Umbridge, and and Travers literally calls them it. Yes, he says, "What did it do to offend you, or something like that?" Like not even treating them as people, but as nuisances. And Hermione, bless her, goes along with it in that moment to hold up her cover as Bellatrix. Mm-hmm. I can imagine that she wants a shower after that one. Well, she doesn't have a chance because this is, I mean, this is it. 
Yeah, this I guess is... they, they dive into the, the mountains, the mountain lake, the cold lock. Yeah. But, <laughs> but when they enough. wake, you know, they wake up that early that morning and then it's just nonstop for the yep. next they don't go gosh, to bed again. Day and a half, two days. Which of is kind of funny because it's action. sort of like how it happens when you read a Harry Potter book and you get to like 150 pages before the end <laughs> and then you don't sleep until you finish. I want to return to one one final thing. There's not a lot more I want to say about these chapters because we do have another big action kind of set piece. Um, but Floor's insistence to Harry that you saved my sister's life kind of becomes almost a joke in the books. Um, every time it's invoked, she has this like tender spot in her heart for Harry because he saved her sister's life. Um, he kind of feels that burning sense of guilt and, and awkwardness and embarrassment because like, all right, she was never actually in any danger. It was an enchanted sleep. The, the school wasn't going to kill these minors um, just because I, you know, we failed our triwizard tests. And yet she also, she knows that Harry didn't know that Gabrielle wasn't in danger. Harry really did think she was going to die, that Hermione was going to die if, if Crumb didn't rescue her and Cho and, and Ron, they were all in danger. So he chose to both lose a task, but also put his own safety at risk for Gabrielle. And I feel like for Fleur, even if she knows now that Gabrielle wasn't in any danger, the intention matters more than the actual circumstances. So she still will maintain and say with no trace of irony, you saved my sister's life. And I think that shows a depth in Fleur that I like. And I love seeing her in, in her home with Bill um, in, in kind of a, un, a unwilling safe house in some ways, but also she's willing to do what she needs to do to, for the order and host these people who are on the run. And then, you know, Lucius Malfoy um, hides out on Star Trek Discovery. And Bill hides out uh, in the first order. And oh my God. Star- <laughs> Wait, that's Bill. Bill that's- is Bill is is Hux. I forgot about yeah. Hux. The actor oh whose God. name I can't pronounce. Uh, next time on the podcast, we'll be reading Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows chapters 28 to 33. That's The Missing Mirror, The Lost Diadem, The Sacking of Severus Snape, The Battle of Hogwarts, The Elder Wand, and The Prince's Tale. Six chapters. Happy reading. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. Please give us a rating or review on your favorite podcast app so others can discover us too. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians and on Twitter at nerdychristians where I occasionally tweet really bad memes. You can find Adam on Twitter at RevAdamThomas or on his website, adamthomas.net. Vampire Mist is his newest book, and it's a story about a group of friends who are surprisingly not terrible at their jobs. And as always, you can find both of us right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. Now may your rest and recreation give you the space to play, explore, and be as God intended you to be. May your nerdy pursuits reconnect you with your inborn sense of awe and imagination. And may the God of wonder and creation open your eyes to see the world around you as you revel in the image of God within you. Amen.